you really do hope you're remembered as, you know, a good husband, a good father, you know, a good whatever your profession is, in my case, a good physician, a good friend. You know, I hope in whatever form I am that I can hover over the conversations after I'm dead because I don't really remember probably most of the outrageous things I've done in my life, but I have a feeling people <laughs> will come to that funeral and share those stories. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind sort of hovering over the proceedings and hearing some of those again. You're listening to the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we share stories of loved ones who have passed on, much more so than any one-page obituary ever could. Today, we're doing something a little different as we have the opportunity to talk to someone who is still with us in this life. Rob Morell is a retired physician from Raleigh, North Carolina, who has been fighting a terminal cancer diagnosis for almost 10 years. He's not so sure how much longer he has, so he and his family wanted to be able to share his story, at least some of it anyway, on this podcast. Rob and his wife Maureen are parents of three adult boys and now four grandchildren. And today, we're joined by Rob, Maureen, and their son, Michael, and we get to hear what the diagnosis has been like for everyone involved, if there are any bucket list items they hope to fill before Rob passes on, and how Rob hopes to be remembered. So Rob, you've been terminal now for nine years. Talk about the day before your diagnosis. What was life like? So I had retired from early in my mid-50s, I had left my, my medical practice. I'd also been a senior vice president for a large healthcare system and was kind of wearing dual hats. And I think I just had a sense, this is back in 2004, 2005, I think I had a sense that, uh, you know, that, that chapter had played itself out. And so um, I resigned from the senior vice president health system job. Uh, and then about a year later, Having gone back to my clinical practice full-time, I actually left that role as well. And then had, had worked part-time for an organization called Community Care of North Carolina, part-time for some years, and, and was just enjoying only having to work half-time. As someone had joked when I said I was retiring at 55, they said, yeah, but you may have only worked, whatever, 25 years, but it was more like 50 because your weeks were typically 90 hours or 100 hours. I said, well, yeah, there is that. So, yeah, I was working part-time, you know, reading a good bit, sort of doing what I would call the my, my second half of life assessment of things, and went in for a follow-up colonoscopy. And uh, to the great surprise of my longtime professional colleague and friend, the gastroenterologist, and certainly our surprise, uh, he said, wow, you, know, you got something bad. That definitely uh, sort of things sort of ground quickly to a halt. And we kind of said, okay, this now has our attention. So our, our whole focus shifted immediately to you know, putting the next steps in order. Take us to the diagnosis. You were saying you went to get a, a colonoscopy. Right. And something, something bad. I had had more, than, more frequent than usual colonoscopies since I'd had my original one at age 50 because I had polyps. And polyps can be predisposing towards cancer, and so they tend to bring you back at more frequent intervals. So if you have a completely clean colonoscopy, you come back at 10 years. Well, initially I came back at two years, and that was clean. And my GI friend said, okay, come on back in three years. And I went back at 55, and that one was clean. 
And he said, okay, we'll see you in five years. Well, in maybe at about a little after year four, the start of year four, I started to have some symptoms, which I'll spare your listeners. Uh, but <laughs> suffice it to say, things had changed in terms of my, we'll just say my bowel pattern. Uh, the other thing that had happened, again, at the risk of getting too clinical, I was out, I was a runner and I was out running and I just found that I couldn't finish my typical sort of morning run. And somewhere along the line, I don't remember exactly who did it, but we checked a you know, just a simple blood count, and my hemoglobin was very, very low. Normally, I'd have 15 and a half, and it was something like 8 and a half. So I was clearly bleeding. I was losing blood somewhere. And the obvious place to think about, or an obvious place to think about is, huh, am I losing blood somewhere in my, in my intestines, in my GI tract? So this colonoscopy, I had called my GI friend, and I said, okay, I'm anemic. My blood count's low which I can't explain, so something may be going on. Let's do the colonoscopy earlier. Yeah, by the time things get arranged, it probably only was done maybe four months before that fifth anniversary. But still, uh, he was pretty taken aback. It was a very, very uh, nasty-looking, aggressive-looking rectal tumor. You know, Maureen knew right away because... You, got, you aren't of the age of having to go through this yet, but you typically, you go have the procedure and you're on the little gurney, uh, the stretcher, and they just kind of pull a curtain. And, and the, the doctor usually comes back and says, okay, everything looks great. See you in five years or 10 years or whatever. This time they sent the nurse and said, the doctor would like to see you in his office, which was essentially a cubicle. Maureen knew right away. Maureen, Uh-oh. what were you thinking? Well, yeah, because Rob was still on the propofol. So I was, was in La La Land. He was a pretty happy I did, camper. Yeah, He's I still on where. drugs. So yeah. when the nurse came out and said, Ron wants to see you in his office. And, you know, I had already been alerted that he had some symptoms that right. may mean that something was wrong. But that was so clearly not the way it usually happened that uh, I figured something was wrong. So we walked in and, and you know, he was very direct. And he said, I oh, yeah. saw a really bad aggressive tumor and of and but both being a friend and a good physician at that point he had already called <laughs> the radiologist and for the follow-up tests so we immediately went from that office and had all the scans and tests and things well, that needed yeah. in the course of about three he had yeah. about four things lined yeah, up yeah he did yeah. his he has a partner who does another kind of test an ultrasound test that would sort of help as they say stage the tumor mm. grade and stage the tumor which helps define sort of what the next steps would be. And he clearly said, okay, who do you want for an oncologist? And I, you know, at that point, uh, the propofol effects had sort of worn off. I was <laughs> very much alert and I pretty much knew without having to think about it too much. I looked at Maureen and I said, well, don't you think we'll go with, mm-hmm. and I named the name of, and Maureen said, yeah, that makes sense. And then he, and then my GI doctor said, and you will go see Dr. So-and-so a colorectal surgeon, whom I had not known. I'd been out of practice now for, I guess, maybe five, six years, five years. And this gentleman had come into town since I had retired. Uh, And it turned out he was absolutely uh, an incredibly gifted surgeon. Part of the reason I'm alive today is because he was so gifted. And I said, who the hell is that? And he said, don't worry, that's the guy you're seeing. So literally, I mean, in a matter of minutes, my GI doc had sort of lined everything up. And then we just kind of, we followed every step of that route. All of that really came together very, very quickly. And so after the 
appointment with the oncologist. What is that appointment like And when they say, okay, yes, here's what it is? Colorectal cancer is pretty protocolized. It's been pretty well studied. And of course, things evolve. So today they may do things a little differently. But at that point, they said, okay, here's the game plan. And they basically said, you're going to get one drug. I always love the fact that it's named 5-FU. I always thought that was a very (laughs) appropriate name. You're going to get one drug by IV continuously for six weeks while you also get daily radiation treatments to the tumor. And then, so that'll take, you know, roughly six weeks. And then you'll take about a month off. They didn't bother to say because you will be so weak and you will have lost so much weight that you need to take a month off. But essentially, that's what happened. We took a month off, had surgery in mid-December of 2010, took another month off, and then had six months of follow-up chemotherapy with a a three-drug regimen. And so is our hope at this point that you can get rid of it? Yeah. there. You know, I kind of vaguely knew, I don't know that Maureen necessarily knew, but yeah, there's a presumption that, okay, we do all this and we're done. And I was clearly operating on that presumption. So you said earlier that I, I was I'd had a terminal diagnosis for nine years. Actually, it's more like seven years because that first year and the subsequent, say, nine months or so, we pretty much thought, we were in the clear. Turns out about two-thirds of people with colorectal cancer are in the clear. They go through the initial treatment phase, as lengthy as it is, 10 to 11 months all told, and they're done. And I have many friends and wives of friends and husbands of friends, etc., who are in that boat. I was in that lucky one-third mm. uh, who metastasize or relapse or have some sort of recurrence or spread of their cancer. And that all happened, really, the first hint of that was a follow-up scan in May of 2012. So we finished the whole almost year-long treatment regimen by July of 2011, got scans every three months or so after that. And in May, I think it was, of 2012, the little spots showed up on my lungs, and I pretty much knew at that point as did my oncologist, what that probably meant. So you have three sons, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're with Mike, who's the middle son? I am, yep. So Mike, when you heard about this diagnosis, do you remember that phone call and what was going through your mind? Yeah, I I remember it vividly. Uh, But, you know, to my dad's point there, I think obviously, you know, you hear cancer and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's shocking and it's scary and all of those things. But as you can tell, just kind of hearing the way my dad talks about it, he has sort of a, uh, a l- level of sort of clinical detachment despite, I mean, he's, he's very much a doctor, but then he also kind of, you know, he's, he's got a big heart and is able to talk about these things in a human way, but also in sort of a, a way that isn't overly emotional. So he kind of laid out, you know, this is, these are the facts, this is the situation. It's not, it's not great, but it could be worse. And so I think actually, you know, after that first call, I remember being nervous, but not you know, it was sort of like, it was also a little bit of relief because it's like, oh, this is scary, but it doesn't seem like this is as bad as it could be. That first stretch, it was like, man, you know, obviously chemo is beyond terrible. And I, I don't think any of us haven't gone through it can fully appreciate just how bad it is. But, you know, he's one of the healthiest guys his age that I've ever been around. And so we saw what it kind of did to him. And it's, uh, so it was hard, but it was kind of like, all right, let's just get through this and then it'll be behind us. So it was a kind of a mix of, well, that was scary, but also, wow, that actually could have been worse. Definitely so strong (laughs) going through this. And Rob, you said you 
are or were a runner? Yeah, most of my life, yeah. So what kind of races were you running? Oh, I was never a big race runner, but I would just, I would go out in the mornings. You know, it's funny, I'm not naturally a morning person, but, you know, the practice of medicine pretty much requires you. And I was largely hospital-based for my practice. And so everything starts in the hospital at, you know, ridiculously early hours. And I pretty much knew that if, if I was going to get any sort of exercise in, it would have to happen before the work, work day started. Often I would be getting up at 4.30 in the morning, which is completely counter to my natural tendency. And, you know, I'd get up, go for a run, come back, kind of cool down, eat some breakfast, jump in the shower, da-da-da, get to work by quarter to seven, and then begins my day. I, so I was a recreational runner. I'd run three to five miles. I, I'd run the occasional 5K, but in my youth, I ran probably too much. Uh, I had an old Eastern European coach. I grew up in the Los Angeles area, and he was a he actually escaped, believe it or not, during the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. He had been a world-class runner himself. But he came from the old school, and we were running. Seriously, there were times when uh, I tallied it up a couple of times, and there were times when we were running 120 miles a week. Oh. And yeah, that was on a, on a skinny 16-, 17-year-old body, it probably wasn't the best idea. So clearly, you know, my later running was much more relaxed than that, and I had no pull to run marathons or any of that because I'd, I'd probably overrun in those early years. So yeah. I was content to be just a recreational runner. Well, and just to add on to that, I think that was probably part of, that contributed to some of the surprise probably initially because it's like, oh, he, he runs every day. He, we have more whole wheat in our house than is normal. <laughs> for, you know, it's like we ate incredibly healthy. He ate incredibly healthy. He was, you know, a doctor who was in tip-top shape and all that. So it was like, it doesn't seem like this is the kind of thing that's supposed to happen to somebody that's uh, that exercises so much and eats so well, but it just goes to show that it's an equal opportunity um, disease. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Doesn't drink or doesn't smoke. Boy, that really makes me sound boring. Uh, no red <laughs> yeah. meat. Yeah. When, do, you, do you have fun ever? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> when when you find out it's it, the spots are going to your lungs. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll we'll start with Marine. Um, you know what's what's your What's going through your mind there? What, what are your emotions like there? You know, I'm not, uh, so I think part of the way I survive is by not remembering some of the bad things. So I'm trying to actually even remember where we were. We you're been you're saying you checked out. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think it's that kind of protective thing. I kind of, uh, you know, through that early time, I thought with the, the level of severity in a way of the treatment that how could anything withstand this much radiation chemos you know and everything else mm-hmm. um when it came back i think it was you know a shock and a um upsetting but i still didn't think i still felt at that point there was some hope for now by dealing with it um if only but i do think that it becomes then um playing for time versus playing for a cure if that makes yeah. sense yeah so i wasn't as much thinking this was going to be cured as what do we keep doing to beat it back yeah and at that point does a doctor say you have x amount of time i don't remember that we had that conversation directly i, I yeah I, I clearly i i clearly remember thinking whether my oncologist and i said this directly to one another i i think we probably did because we'd known each other for years and we'd had scores of patients in common over the, so i pretty much knew how he thought and so seems to me i mean i said to him in May of 2012, I said, oh, Lord, I know what that is. And he goes, well, now, you know, 
They're really tiny. You don't really know that. And I kind of looked at him. I cocked an eyebrow like, come on, give me a break. And he said, look, you know, I don't know that he said this, but to use Maureen's old Irish expression, don't go borrow in trouble. And I was like, well, we're not going to, there's nothing to treat at this point. Let's just get another scan in three months and see what, you know, they maybe were, they will have disappeared. Maybe that, well, sure enough, three months later, they were all still there and now a little bit larger. So at that point, it was pretty clear by, I don't know if it was three months, it might have been a little, let's say September, October of 2012, it was clear that I had metastatic disease and that that would be terminal. I would die of this disease at some point. But I also remember saying to Maureen at that time and probably at intervals thereafter, you know, I just, I just don't have a sense that I'm supposed to kind of cash in my chips yet. I don't know where that came from, but there was a real sense of, okay, you know, damn, let's, but let's play out the hand and let's see where it goes. And I remember thinking, you know, Michael's younger brother had gotten married at that point. I think you were getting pretty interested in Liz. And so we were thinking, well, Michael, and so, you know, you start to think about next generations. Hey, you know, could I still be around to see any grandchildren? You know, you start to think in those terms. I don't think I catastrophized. It was just like, okay, here's the hand we got to play. But there was also not a sense of, oh, shit, why me? You know, I'd seen enough random stuff as a physician that there's no sense of uh, entitlement. There's no sense of, well, I did all the right things. Why did this happen to me? You know, sort of why not me? You know, it's my time. Okay, let's play the hand. And see how far it takes us. Back in 2012, you probably didn't expect to be here in no. 2019. No. No, I mean, I, I don't think I set myself a time frame. But if somebody said to me, you'll still be alive in 2019, I would have just laughed. Yeah. No, I absolutely did not think that would be in the cards. I know for us that that, that sort of has been the most eye-opening part of this entire process is, I mean, to Jason, to your point, to question earlier that, you know, I kind of expected there to be a lot more of like, all right, well, this means dad has six months to live or a year to live. And there's been almost none of that. I mean, I, I think for, for me and for my brothers uh, who don't have the medical background that my folks do, you know, we, we, we see what we see in movies and sh TV shows. And it's a lot more of sort of, uh, it's a lot more definitive, but as my dad in particular says over and over, it's a lot of times it's more art than science, some of the prognosis stuff that, that we encounter. So I think, you know, my dad writes these epically long but very <laughs> uh, detailed and great emails, um, kind of, I mean, updating people. I think partly they do it for their own sanity, so they're not telling a million different people a million different times what's going on with him. But exactly. It's, yeah, mm -hmm. but it's... Uh, but I think, you know, sometimes we'll read those emails and it's like, man, that was that was a great update, but I still have no idea whether he has three months or three years or, or more. So it's, uh, I think at times that's been a little frustrating trying to parse some of the words from the doctor or from my parents of sort of like, all right, well, how much, how long realistically does he have? But I think the reality is that no one kind of knows for sure. So mm -hmm. That's been eye-opening for me for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, Maybe you can stay around to see grandkids. Yeah. And you have grandkids now? Oh, yeah, right? we now have four. Four grandkids. Yeah, Michael and Liz have a boy and a little girl. Little girl's just three months old. And Michael's younger brother, Patrick, and his wife, Clay, who live down near Charlotte, have uh, an almost four-year-old little girl and an almost two-year-old little boy. Wow. So we have two granddaughters and two grandsons. Congratulations. Yeah, it's great yeah. fun. Great fun. That was kind of a bucket list item for you, you know, something mm -hmm. to, to stick around to see grandkids. 
Was there anything else that was, uh, you know, bucket list items that you've been able to fill or complete you know, over the last nine years? Yeah, I mean, good question. It's funny. People have asked me that. You know, I never, and, you know, Maureen jump in here too. You know, I never really had a bucket list. Truly, I, I, I'm not trying to sound whatever, noble or anything. I just didn't. Now, I can think of a time, for instance, when a friend of mine from India, his daughter was married here in the States, and the plan was for her to then have the traditional Indian marriage back in the ancestral home. And he said, hey, would you like to go to my daughter's wedding ceremony in India? Now, I had not lain awake at night saying, wow, I would really want to go to India before I die. But I said, without even blame, I said, absolutely, because it was a chance to see India yeah. with him uh, you know, who, who was born and raised in India, came to the States when he was about 20 or 21. That was a wonderful opportunity. It turns out not to have taken place. So to me, I, you know, I never had a bucket list of, of, you know, stuff to see. But the idea of traveling somewhere with a friend or a loved one who has a particular relationship with a part of the world and to be able to kind of view it through their eyes or hear their experiences, that's appealing. I think the bucket list has been more, so it hasn't been the things that you think about or like in the movie where people go all over the world and see things they hadn't seen. I think it's been digging more into our everyday life with the relationships that of the people we love, like our family and our friends, and then reconnecting. So connecting with a lot of old friends as well as new friends and the, the, obviously the kids and, and their kids. And then what taking advantage of the things that we really like to do on a daily basis. So we go, I mean, as my youngest son once said, that we have a better social life than he did. But we go to a lot of concerts and plays and family things and Movies trips and with friends. And, you know, it's funny, we've never really talked about it with your friends from the, like childhood friends from the West Coast or other friends. But all of a sudden people are saying a lot more, let's do this, let's do that. Now part of it is we're all retired now and have that, you know, both the, the time and probably the means to, to get together. But I think they're also aware of the timing issues. And so we've seen a, a lot of our college roommates and yeah. childhood friends coming and doing fun things with them. But it hasn't so, been like international travel. Per se. So here's a nice story. Years ago, Maureen was in graduate school at the University of Minnesota in the School of Public Health. And her best friend was a woman named Mary Minderhout from Michigan. And my oldest one of my very oldest and very best friends from Southern California days uh, was a guy named Jim Ragsdale. And Jim, at, at a couple of different junctures in his life, quit his jobs on the West Coast and came and just kind of lived with us. And turned out very good timing for us at one point because my father out in Southern California had a big stroke. And I went out to just sort of coordinate his care because that was frankly beyond what my mother or my siblings out there could manage. Jim happened to be living with us at the time. So I remember kind of jokingly, people would say, well, how's Maureen? How's she doing? This is before we had children. I said, oh, she's fine. Well, is she alone? Oh, no, no, no. She's living with my best friend. (laughs) So, you know, people got to chuckle out of that. Anyway, Jim turns out that Mary stopped 35 years of work as a nurse practitioner in the Twin Cities area. They had married and lived in the Twin Cities and raised their three kids there. Mary quits on September 30th having not missed a day of work in 35 years, they go in October 1st or 2nd, something like that, to get a CT scan of Jim's abdomen. He'd had a lot of vague symptoms. And as she feared and as I feared, uh, it turns out he has pancreatic cancer. 
He withholds that information from becoming public until after Michael and Liz's wedding. So on the Monday after their wedding, he then sends out a, a, you know, an email to people saying, I have pancreatic cancer, which, of course, is a 99 times out of 100 is a terminal diagnosis. Long story short, Jim lived about the usual time, 13 months, died in November of 2014. Ever since they'd first had their first child, had first moved to Minneapolis, they would take a week and go to a lake, go to Lake Michigan, an area above Traverse City, a very pretty, beautiful area of Lake Michigan. They went every year. It was a little bit like the the place in Dirty Dancing. You know, it was like this family-owned, funky, mom-and-pop little vacation joint. Anyway, we knew they were still going. And again, as Maureen said, one of my West Coast friends called and said, hey, I, you know, I'm thinking I want to go to Maine. And I said, well, I, uh, I said, how about Michigan? And he goes, well, what do you think? I said, well, let's, let's contact Mary. So we contacted Mary. Yep, we're going again this year. And all three kids will be there with their significant others and the one grandchild. She goes, that'd be great. So long story short, we hopscotched our way. Maureen doesn't like to fly. So we drove through you know, Tennessee and Kentucky and Indiana and stayed with family and all of that and then made it up to Lake Michigan. Friends of ours flew in, one couple from the L.A. area and another couple from the Seattle area. And we spent the week on Lake Michigan, uh, had a great time. Mary was delighted we were there. The one daughter who was married and had the grandchild, had the child, Mary's only grandchild, had been married as they said, toes in the sand at that very location, just, I don't know how many, I forget how many years earlier, maybe five years earlier. And it just so happened that we were there for their youngest child, Catherine, to announce her engagement to Dan. Yeah, to Dan. No, I was just thinking it, wow. was, it was sort of a moving moment. And so I, everybody's, we have sort of a very impromptu little, little uh, kind of little, early evening reception of wine and cheese and stuff. And everybody is there. And I, you know, I just did a very brief little toast. Michael, you'll be glad to know it was brief. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, just said, you know, your dad's smiling down on this because he's loving every bit of this. And, you know, it made you realize beyond seeing sights before I die, that was a moment I was really grateful to be present for. It's moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had no idea that all that was going to come to pass. But if you want to have a bucket list, that's what I want my bucket list to consist of, not whether or not I've seen the Taj Mahal. Mike, what about you? Have there been, did you have some things that you wanted to do with your dad, you know, before he passes? And have there been, you know, some special moments that, you know, come to mind right away? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think your first reaction anytime something like this happens to them, I think you're just thinking about how to maximize time together. And, uh, you know, at the time of the initial diagnosis, I was living in Washington, D.C. And then after that was in New York for several years. So, you know, with my folks in Raleigh, it made made it a little bit more of a challenge. Although I think we still did a pretty good job of seeing each other regularly. You know, that now that my family and I are in Durham and close by, I mean, we get to do fun things like talk to you and we get to, <laughs> uh, you know, have regular dinners and breakfasts and things like that. So I think it it's probably similar to their answer about the bucket list where it's, I don't know that it's necessarily like a checklist of cool things we want to do together. Although I think we have conversations around like cool family trips and stuff like that. But I think more than anything, it's just like, how do we sort of maximize the number of days um, that we can spend together? And having those dinners. 
definitely. And, and, you know, to their point earlier, they, their social calendar is, is difficult to crack sometimes. <laughs> they do so much. I mean, if there's a concert in a 50 mile radius, I feel like they're going to it, but they've been great. I mean, they're amazing grandparents and that's been definitely one of the special parts about living so close, um, is getting to see them as much as we have. And it's, it is wild, sort of the odyssey that dad's been on where, you know, it just feels like every couple of years, it's like, all right, this is time's running out. And then it's somehow he kind of gets a new cutting edge surgery or a new medicine or um, something happens to sort of buy a little bit more time. So yeah, he, meant, he kind of mentioned this earlier, but in 2012, if you told him he'd be sitting here in 2019, he, I don't think he would have believed it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of my favorite things with the kids, favorite memories of the kids kind of uh, being being thought so thoughtful and available to us is when Rob was really sick and he was in bed, our TV in our bedroom was oh. an old <laughs> box CTV that sat was had a built in VCR in it. So we were, they came to visit one time and we were watching TV and Rob was like, what's the score? And I'd have to get up out of the bed, go up to the TV to say what the score was because I couldn't see it. It was too small. So the next time Michael came back, all of a sudden he and Patrick had bought us a, a real TV that was big enough for us to see yeah. the score. Which we still have. Which, which we uh, still have. Yeah. When I was, I was working for, pardon the interruption, the ESPN show at the time. Yeah. And so the fact that I was working for a TV show yeah. and you had such a bad TV, I think offended my sensibilities <laughs> as a TV person. So, uh, yeah, I think it, I, I like to think that we would have got done that even if you hadn't been sick. Yeah. The fact that you were so bedridden made it an, a no brainer. Well, and that was really, that was probably the, uh, that completed the trifecta. We have a f- fairly large master bedroom and, uh, for a year we had a fireplace. This was an addition to the home when we bought it way back in the late eighties. So we had a fireplace in that in that uh, bedroom, but it was and it was a gas fed fireplace. But the gas pipes had been capped for I mean literally like twenty five years. Mm-hmm. It was, you know. And I remember before I ever got diagnosed, we finally said, "Oh, for God's sake, let's get some." You know, the gas logs are actually fairly attractive now; they aren't as ugly as they were twenty years ago. For God's sake, let's get some gas logs. We put in the gas logs. We actually get a little carpet and get a couple of nice upholstered chairs like really comfortable chairs and then michael and patrick you know michael gets the tv and they install it and they set up apple that TV was the biggest part of the gift was the install yeah the mm-hmm. install i didn't have to install so then i'm diagnosed and i and boy i'll tell you over the nine years i can't tell you how many times especially you know in cold weather but sometimes it didn't even have to be really cold weather because i would just get so chilled i turn on that those gas logs sit in those comfortable chairs, wrap myself in an afghan, and watch sports or an old movie on that big TV, that kept me sane. Yeah. If, I, if I'd probably lacked any one of those three, I might have gone nuts. Yeah. So uh, yeah, little, You're, you're little, basically living in a 100 square feet or so for oh, a Lord. big chunk of the last decade. There were times two weeks might go by where the only, the only place I went other than lying in bed or sitting in one of those chairs to go to the bathroom, you know, 15 steps away. Yeah. And it's not like I felt somehow imprisoned. That was all I had the juice to do. This can be a test of uh, endurance. Is that one of the hardest parts then, just running out of energy? Yeah, I think one of the mysteries of all this, and I've, I've even said it to my oncologist, and I'll watch my language here. There, there needs to be a different word somehow invented in the English language to describe the fatigue that happens with chemotherapy and radiation therapy and just the cancer process. Um, Because, you know, 
I ran ridiculous distances as a teenager and got exhausted. I went through medical school and residency and had ridiculously long hours. So I think I know something about physical exhaustion. The fatigue that you feel, that one feels with cancer treatments, is really unlike any other fatigue. The word fatigue does not begin to capture what it feels like. And I remember... You know, the oncolo- my oncologist would say, well, you know, this one drug, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you get, you know, the usual fatigue. I said, hold it, hold it right there. <laughs> you don't know what the usual fatigue is. So what, what word did you come up with? Oh, I, there isn't one. Oh. But I, I, well, it's a fatigue that does not get resolved with rest. It does not I improve with rest. That, I think so, that's the... so you will be exhausted and you will go to sleep and maybe you'll even take a five-hour nap and you'll wake up and you will not feel one bit better. I mean, you'll, that's not entirely true. You'll feel a little bit better, but the actual kind of baseline fatigue does not change until yeah. you're out of treatment. And even then, it's usually at least weeks, if not months, post-treatment before mm-hmm. that fatigue really resolves. That sounds so hard. So, Mike, in 2014, you did a series of YouTube videos with your dad. Why did you do those? Because he thought I was going to die. <laughs> Obviously. (laughs) But yeah, why did you do this? I think, you know, going back to the grandkids, I mean, at that point, I was uh, recently married, but I uh, did not yet have kids. And, you know, I think things weren't looking great sort of long term. Uh, I guess that was before you guys had gone to the UK. Right. To get the surgeries that you got in London that helped to buy you a little bit extra time. But I think at that point, you know, I was kind of thinking of it a little bit as sort of like, as videos that we'd, I'd be able to show my kids later and saying, this is was your grandfather. You never got the chance to meet him, but here was kind of his philosophy about life. And here was what he thought the keys were to being a good father or a good doctor or a good husband. You know, just sort of some big, heavy stuff that doesn't, never phased him to talk about. So yeah, I would just sort of, I would just sort of tee it up and let him just knock balls down the fairway because he, <laughs> he could go for, for a long time on some of those big existential questions. So yeah, that I can was tell. A, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> so the, what what didn't show up on the camera was Michael drawing his finger across his neck several times, you know, saying, hey, you know, "Cut!" You know, no, I'm, I'm joking. No, it was a, uh, but it's it's a fun, you know, and it's uh, you know, the fact that he's still here to tell us all of those things and more is just a bonus. But it's nice to have those now forever, and we've even talked about doing a round two here. So I, uh, it's funny at the times to to show how far technology has come at the time i recorded them all on those flip cameras oh yeah, yeah which yeah. back then that was sort of like man these flip cameras are so cool and it's feels like six months later they were obsolete it's just amazing how yeah. how everybody does everything on their phones now so i'll uh round two i think will be on the iphone put it on a little tripod and and fire away but i have a, a big list of additional questions to go through <laughs> so and it'll be fun you know we've i think we've already i you know i'd love to record individual messages to each of the grandkids. And, you know, I think, I think four grandkids is probably going to be the number that I don't see any more grandkids coming from any of the the families. So I think it's nice now knowing that he's been able to spend time with all four of them and be able to record messages that are tailored specifically to each of them. And it's just a really cool keepsake to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then now they have their own videos together, you know, which you didn't expect, which is amazing to have. What's one question that you're going to ask in round two that you didn't get to the first time? Yeah, well, I think uh, <laughs> I think it really will be kind of specific to the grandkids. I think it'll be, you know, I think I've even kicked around in my own head and we can figure out this part. But I think it would be cool to sort of record little little question and answer segments for ver- different stages of their lives. Um, you know, we have a 
we alluded earlier to my niece is almost four, you know, sort of like elementary school, like what are sort of the things that she should be doing there? And then it would be cool, you know, once she gets to middle school age or thereabouts or becomes a kind of a teenager, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the, what are sort of his advice for that stage of life and, and so on and so on. So, uh, you know, if he's up for doing that times four, you know, going through kind of the different stages for the different kiddos, I think that would be cool is, is now, you know, before I think we had to keep it a little bit broader and now I think we can kind of make it a little bit more personalized for all four grandkids. Yeah, that's awesome. Rob, in one of the videos, you said that each of us has something unique and it's our responsibility to share it with history before departing the, departing this mortal coil. What did you mean by that? And what's your something special and something unique? There's no elevator speech to answer that question. I, yeah, I, and this sort of comes out of my own, I guess, spiritual journey or, or beliefs. I'm nominally, not more than nominally, I have been raised Christian, but I do have great regard for and have done some study of other religions. And I do believe that there are many pathways up the hill and that each of the great wisdom traditions shares a final common pathway. And I do believe that in sort of the, maybe the more mystical traditions of each of the great religions, there is a belief that each of us is embedded with something divine and unique to each of us. And that part of, that, that perhaps the major part of our life journey is to really discern uh, what that is. And we tend to, particularly in the West, I think, we tend to think that that's uh, some active exercise on our part, that it's, that it's for us to figure that out. And we certainly need to engage ourselves in, in that, but we also need to somehow allow for the mystery of the process to, to exert itself. Um, if, if we put ourselves too much in the middle of the whole equation, I think our, our own industriousness and fervor will actually block perhaps the, the revelation of what that gift may be. I guess my sense is we need to live with uh, some appreciation for not just the beauty of creation, but also its mystery. If we leave some openness, some capacity for mystery to enter our lives, I think we'll be surprised by what we can learn. I'm not disparaging the value of our brains. I have a lot of initials after my name that show all the different things that I did in the academic world. But I also have an appreciation that there's some deep wisdom that uh, is obtained uh, to some extent through one's humility and surrender rather than through one's active effort. Well, and over so the last it, nine years, then, you know, you, you said you had to be open to this wisdom. You know, what what have you learned and what wisdom has have you been open to that's what, what have you been open to that uh, you, you, you got this wisdom that you, know, you, oh, you might not have? A million things. You know, I don't think you have enough, even with digital technology, you may not have enough capacity to hear everything. But mm. <laughs> uh, No, I think, they're, they're, boy, number one, I, I truly deeply believe that we're accompanied, that uh, that does not mean that there is not pain in life. There absolutely is. God knows, however, that I've been lucky to be born where I was. You know, I could just as easily, as could any one of us, be uh, starving in Yemen or bombed in Syria or, or uh, imprisoned in India, as uh, dear Prime Minister Modi is now in the process of doing to millions of uh, longtime residents of India. I mean, who am I to complain about what my fate has become given the hand that I was dealt? I was dealt, uh, you know, the, the 1% best hand of the world. 
in terms of comfort and material security. There is a randomness to life, and there can be a lot of pain. And uh, but but I do believe deeply that we are accompanied often in ways that we don't appreciate at the time. And there is a resolution, a peace, a serenity that can be ours. But we do have to kind of sit with our pain and to some extent lean into what life has handed us, both the both the those things that might make us elated and those things that might bring us to our knees. I think the Buddhists really teach us that. Just lean into it and and see what lessons there are to be learned. I think there's a great value in learning to accept help and to be grateful for the whole package. The 12-step programs talk about, you know, people talk about being a grateful alcoholic. You know, I'm not sure that I'm a grateful cancer patient, but I will say that I've absolutely learned things and been exposed to grace and the gifts of others in ways that I probably would not have ever experienced but for this disease. And I've learned how to accept because, frankly, there were times when I had no choice but to accept. But one of the real things I've learned is that if you accept well the gifts of others, if you receive with grace and, and gracefulness, then you as the receiver become the giver, and the giver becomes the receiver. Because when you accept with real graciousness and, and an open heart, that is a gift back to the giver. And that's when the flow, uh, which I think is really the secret of the cosmos, is the, the flow and interaction of, of love. That's when we are mirroring the divine. We're in this creation because, we'll call, in the Christian tradition, we'll say, because God had to put God's love somewhere. And I think when we have those glimpses of the, you know, the better angels of our nature, when we're at our best, that's when we come closest to being the beloved sons and daughters of God. Wow. Maureen, did you always have this outlook uh, or has this evolved? For Rob, mm-hmm. you know, his outlook has been, he has been amazingly open and honest about this process. And I do think back to being feeling accompanied. I think we both have from a, both, I mean, we have been accompanied by our kids and our friends and our family just in many ways. But in terms of being accompanied by a divine presence through this, I think it's been important to both of us. I've probably worried sometimes that Rob has been so amazing, has had such an amazing attitude that I just don't want him to feel backed into the corner that he always has to be the perfect patient because he has been, he's really managed this amazingly with amazing grace and graciousness. I do think, you know, for... um, Back to the question about, you know, the gifts in, in things. You know, we were just talking about this the other night. Um, you know, Dorothy Day, who was a founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, years ago said that God is found in the interruptions of life and kind of in what life presents you. And I think that's when you know what it is you're to do, and and hopefully that's what also brings forth some of your gifts. So Rob's, since he's been ill predominantly, this has happened most of his life, uh, medical life, but he almost on a full-time basis now is helping <laughs> other people na- navigate healthcare systems. And it, it was so funny because when it started, I think I was one of the first people that pointed out, gosh, Rob, you have at least about five or six people, it seems like, in a week 
that are calling you for advice, because he's very good about taking complex medical situations and explaining them to people in a way that helps them know what the next step is. Very helpful. Yeah. Now, now I said to him just yesterday, I said, this is like a full-time ministry. I said, you have so many people that are, you know, needing, you're helping by doing this. I said, actually, one of the things I just want to point out is from an energy point of view of your own energy with more fatigue, you know, you might just want to be aware of how much time and energy do you have to be able to give all, because it's, as another friend had said to us, uh, too bad he couldn't monetize this. We could have made a whole lot of money on, on the fact that he's doing this for so many people. But I do think that that's one of the gifts in all this for that he's showing right now. I think for me, one of the biggest gifts has been truly focusing um, in staying in the present moment or in staying in today. And not because that was some virtue that I developed. It was more that one early on, I remember thinking, if I'm constantly worried about all the bad things that are going to happen, I'm totally screwing up any time we have that could be enjoyable. I compartmentalize a lot and don't get too far ahead of myself because it, I feel like I want to just really appreciate what I have now. So I think the situation has helped me do that because it can be scary to, to con- you know, to be contemplating you know, when is it going to happen and what is it going to mean and how sick is he going to be and is he going to suffer and all of those things. So I figure when those things come, you know, you're forced to deal with them then. But in the meantime, I'm trying to stay, not get ahead of my headlights. And you sound grateful too. or Very grateful. I feel like I would be pissed. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and you oh, there have been those moments. almost 69 years old. I yeah, right, 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 yeah. If no, I were I mean, your listen, age, I would have been pissed too. It's not like I've been Mr. Equanimity the whole time. Oh, absolutely. There have been, and let me tell you, there's a plenty of this that has sucked big time along the way. So it's not like I've, you know, I'm Mr. Blythe and you know, endlessly patient. But on balance, you, you really do. I mean, again, to go back to Maureen's point too about living in the present moment. That's, that really is, right? That, that, that really is the message of the great wisdom teachers of all traditions. And the boy, this has been a wonderful teacher in that regard because, I mean, there, there were times, honestly, when I would be sitting there in certain times when I just felt awful. And I looked at my watch or probably a clock. I probably wasn't wearing a watch, but I'd say, okay, let's just get through the next 10 minutes. That's it. And I'd go back to trying to watch TV or whatever. Uh, that sounds uh, like you're, you're running, though, right? Like, because it, when you're running. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Let's just, you're, you're chunking it down yes. into like bite-sized pieces. Yeah. But I do think it really did enforce. Uh, you ju- I just did not have the energy, certainly didn't have the desire, but I didn't even have the capacity to replay my screw-ups of the past or to worry too much or fret about the future. I I had to bring whatever energy was left to just get through where I am right now. So you can say, well, God, that sounds awful. Well, I, I, there were plenty of times when it wasn't fun, but it was really great training in truly staying in the present moment, which is, again, what the great wisdom teachers tell us is the only way to really create capacity for and to recognize where we come from. Yeah. 
It's our ego in charge of the trying to drive the bus every time we're rethinking how we should have or could have said something better or how we can line up the, you know, the Lego blocks in just the right way for the future. That's, that's us trying to drive the bus. Ego is important. You got to have it. You got to have an organized life. I get it. Uh, and heaven knows I had a strong ego all my life. And that's how I put together a medical practice and took care of thousands of patients. All of that's good. It's just, as the philosophers would say, it's necessary but not sufficient. Yeah, that's powerful. Well, let's get to advice. And Mike, we'll start with you. What, what advice do you have for people whose loved ones or whose parents are going through something like this? Man, that is a great question. I, I think, you know, not to just uh, steal what mom was saying earlier, but I really do think it's sort of a, it's the cliche of kind of one day at a time and, and, and the whole carpe diem season the day. Um, you know, I think it's just so easy to, to kind of get out ahead of your skis a little bit on catastrophizing everything. And mm-hmm. she's been saying, don't go borrowing trouble for as, as my entire life. So it's uh, it's something that she's always believed, but it's um, it's particularly useful now. And I think... I think that's the big thing. It's so easy to, you know, get way ahead of yourself. But I think, you know, even just like right here, we're sitting, uh, sitting in the studio. This is a, what a cool experience this is for us. I mean, I know this is uh, I'm glad that we're doing this while dad is here. Uh, <laughs> you know, even just this is, is a pretty special time together. And I think also I would, I commend my folks for kind of being self-aware enough on things that they should and maybe shouldn't be doing with the time they have left together. I mean, we've talked about all the th- great concerts and interesting trips and times with friends and time with family that they do, you know, I, they've been kicking around, um, moving out of their house that they've been in forever. And I think particularly to my mom's credit, recognize that, you know, moving is a nightmare. Moving with somebody who's terminally ill is even more of a nightmare. And, uh, my dad has been known to have a temper here or there when he gets frustrated (laughs) with things. So I think, uh, recognizing that like, do we really want to be going through the process of moving during however much time we have left? And I think they realized that they didn't putting things to the side that are going to be a pain that you don't need to do now is probably a smart move and just trying to uh, really maximize every day you have left together. And hopefully there's a lot, a lot of days left. Well, plus who's the first uh, person that they call when they need help moving. Right. Oh, definitely. Part of this is, uh, is my self-interest that I'm, I'm not trying to carry boxes up and off, down. Right? Yeah. When, 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 when Michael and Patrick both uh, quickly agreed with Maureen that now was not the time to move, you know, I, of course, quickly jumped in to say, okay, it's a three-to-one vote. I'll abide by the majority. But hear me loud and clear. After I'm gone, a year or two later, whenever it might be, that mom decides to, it's time to sell the house, you guys, I don't care what your jobs are, how many kids are driving you crazy, whatever your issues may be at work or at home, by God, you better show up because if you don't, I will come back to haunt you. <laughs> well, so well, now you have an audio that's yeah. right. transcript <laughs> of right. me confirming that I will I will step up to yeah. the plate. And we have every confidence. Yeah. <laughs> and if we do a pull quote on this episode, it'll be, I will come to haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> Maureen, what about you? So what advice do you have? for for a um, a spouse that's going through this? You know, uh, Rob and I have a meditation practice and prayer and meditation practice in the mornings and that we've had for a long time together. And um, uh, I think for me to have to, starting my day by uh, having some that's quiet, I often get up a little bit earlier than Rob, um, not always, but having a little bit of time by myself and then time together to kind of ground our, myself is 
been huge. I think what Rob said about accepting help, and I'm not very good at that. I've gotten much better. But to recognize that when people say they want to do things and help you, they do, they really want that. That I've tried to learn to be more gracious about that and to um, allow people to do that. I think one of the things I had to remember is my children are men, not boys. And there are a number of times, I remember this one time when Rob got bad news and it was Labor Day weekend. And I said, well, let's not tell the kids till Monday or Tuesday so that they don't, we don't ruin their weekends. And he said, you know, Maureen, that our kids are men. They're not going to appreciate your treating them like they're kids. And so that was, that's been hard for me. When the, when the kids get bad news about Rob, they talk to both of us and they talk to Rob. And then invariably, I know in a couple, in very soon afterwards, they're each going to call me individually and you know say how you're doing, which has meant a lot to me. But, you know, there's it's still a little, it can be challenging on the one hand to want to protect them, but also want to be honest and involve them. So so that's been an interesting thing to negotiate, uh, to for me to negotiate, like, uh, where that is. I think one of my fears is, not fears, but one of my, um, one, something I want to make sure I don't feel at the end of all this when Rob dies is regret, that we either didn't do something or we didn't say what needed to be said. You know, we've had... We've known each other for 50 years. We've been married for most of that. Wow. <laughs> I never remember how long we've been married. How long we've been married? 46 years. 46 years. Yeah. And so a lot of things have been said over those years. There's also a, in an older relationship, there can be a, a uh, you can also take things for granted that, of course, you know or whatever. So we've, you know, I've had that wanting, you know, discussions with Rob and wanting to be aware that if things, you know, need to be said, more specifically, and um, I just don't want to have regrets and mm-hmm. that we haven't done all the things that will make the grieving part of this, I think, easier by not having regrets of having said or done things that need to be said or done. And Rob, you've had a lot of time to think about your death, and what do you want in your obituary, and how do you want people to remember you? You know, you, you, you really do hope you're remembered as, you know, a, a good husband, a good father, you know a good, whatever your profession is, in my case, a good physician, a good friend. You know, I think one of the things that I have done well in my life is to accompany people through their trials, if they ask me to. I'm not frightened by painful stuff. In some ways, what can sometimes wear me out are the trivialities of life. I can do social chatter, but it can wear me out. When the non-essentials are stripped away and somebody's really, you know, staring into the abyss and they need somebody to kind of be there with them as they attempt to either jump into or cross that abyss, you know, I'm pretty good at doing that. So I think I'm a good and, and I hope faithful friend. You are. I hope people will remember that, will think that, you know, that I could sometimes make chicken salad out of chicken, you know what, uh, you know, that, that there are few things, at least in my life, as lucky as we've been, that are tragedies. And so, you know, one of the cliches of the last few years has been, well, that's a first world problem. Well, you know, really, a lot of what we tend to complain about, at least in the Western world and in the U.S., are first world problems. We're all citizens of, a, of this one globe, and when you don't have to dig too deeply to look around and realize just how fortunate we have been, but also 
now in this era of climate change, how much needs to happen if we're going to accommodate all of us in a way that's humane and life preserving. Yeah. So I hope, you know, people will know, it will say, yeah, you know, he had a good sense of humor and there are a lot of stories and, you know, I hope in whatever form I am that I can hover over the conversations after I'm dead because I don't really remember truly probably most of the outrageous things I've done in my life, but I have a feeling people <laughs> will come to that funeral and share those stories. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind sort of hovering over the proceedings and hearing some of those again. Is there one story that you want to hear? Oh, I don't, I, yeah, again, we're going back to my, <laughs> to my memory. I, no, I can't think of anything okay. that jumps right out. Well, when uh, his high school friends get together, there's, there's a bunch of them. Oh yeah. There'll <laughs> be a bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to need to make sure we have uh, plenty of seating and we budget plenty of time for that ceremony because there's going to be a lot of people that are going to yeah. want to be there. And probably have a good bit of food and drink because it may go on a while, yeah. <laughs> which is fun. I, I think that's, you know, one thing, The other, another thing that comes to mind is, and maybe this is part of what I'm, I'm supposed to do. Michael alluded to my email updates. And uh, while I don't think I'm, I hope I'm not swinging any sledgehammers, part of what I want to try to do is just oh we have so many uh, misconceptions and and fears uh, about a number of things in our culture but certainly end of life is one that we don't want to talk about and you know part of what I want to impart to the extent that I can is that you know hey it's all part of the package and you know you really can take steps morning and I recently have gone through multiple steps in arranging my end of life care and our next step, now that we've pretty much assembled all the pieces, is to really sit down face-to-face with Michael and Liz and Patrick and Clay and say, okay, here's what we're thinking about. And some of this could maybe weird you out a little bit because it's not going to be following the norm that we've come to accept as the norm, uh, you know, embalming bodies and putting them in $12,000 metal caskets and all of that silliness, which is really only in the last hundred years. Prior to that, you know, we... We did things in sort of the traditional way. So some of what I'm hoping, too, is that I leave a legacy where people say, well, he taught me that cancer isn't a death sentence necessarily, that we needn't live in (laughs) terminal fear of death. Um, So some of it, part of it is my personality has always been a little bit of a rule breaker, a little bit of a curmudgeon, a little bit of a, oh, come on, those are misconceptions, and, and sort of, hopefully shining light on ways that things could be done better. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think that's pretty much all the questions I have yeah. and I'll, I'll leave a, an open space here. If you, if any of you want to say anything more, cause we, we've got some great, so. I think you did great. Yeah. Thanks great, Jason. Great this was, this was great. No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you all for, for doing this. And yeah. I mean, this is very special that, that you're able to put this together, that, that yeah. you put your videos together and everything. And, um, yeah, thank you for, for being here for this. Yeah, it's fun to think that, you know, I, I'm maybe your first person that's here in the flesh. And, and yeah. who knows, maybe you'll want to ha- bring people back after I'm gone and have a sort of an epilogue to, now let, to let, this. Let, let us tell you really what we think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, and then you'll get the real story now, since I won't be sitting here. <laughs> I can thanks. see the fear in everybody's eyes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks Jason. Jason. Thank you, Rob, Maureen, and Michael for coming on Beyond the Obituary. 
And thank you for listening to this podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review, and check out some of the past episodes we've done as well. And if you're in need of a family-run funeral home for your loved ones, or if you'd like to share your story, visit rfhr.com. This podcast is a production of EarFluence, which you can find at EarFluence.com. I'm Jason Gillikin, and thank you for listening to the Beyond the Obituary podcast. Podcast.